As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, welcome to this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast. It's great to have you with us. I'm Ali Maxwell. I've got Michael Cox, Liam Tharm and Mark Carey from The Athletic with me. We're going to try and answer the question, how to play against a top team if within your own context and your own league, you are not that. So a tactical question, but one with plenty of interesting contextual branches as well. Guys, I'd like to see what you've been tweeting about in the build-up to a podcast just so I can judge what kind of mood you're in. It's very important that I prepare myself for that in my role. Uh, Michael, this week, talking about one of your favourite topics, kickoff times. And you might not have thought it, but you are able to use the word disgraceful to describe a kickoff time. So I'm expecting you to be fired up today. Yeah, disgraceful specifically with the 8.15 evening kickoff time, which I think just makes it sometimes really difficult to get home, especially with the amount of stoppage time these days. Mm. So, yeah, it really annoyed me. There was a game over Christmas, I think it was when Arsenal lost to West Ham. And the TV cameras, you know, focused on all the fans leaving the ground, you know, and obviously people like to mock them for leaving early. But uh, some people just need to get the train home. Disgraceful. Uh, Liam, you quoted a tweet that detailed that Mickey van der Ven's top speed against Brentford was 10.38 metres per second and also pointed out that Usain Bolt's average speed in his 100 metre world record sprint was 10.44 metres per second but you said I need everyone to do me a massive favour and not compare the average speed of a 100 metre world record to the maximal speed of any other sprint it doesn't work like that no my head got rather hot over a tweet which I learned that from Coxie maybe on on that one Um, no it was it was purely my my athletic side showing of uh, yeah don't don't compare a block start and and even then obviously Van der Ven's top speed he didn't even touch Bolt's average which is sort of from static, and I was told by a few people, don't take it too seriously, it's only a bit of fun, but but why do that when you can moan about it instead? He is quick, though. He is quick. He's really <laughs> he's great fun to watch. We, we've said that on this pod numerous times. He's ridiculously athletic and uh, a good balance of making great recovery runs and then still just flying into, ch- into challenges as well. So Liam's belligerent this week, and Mark providing the light to our darkness. As always, you tweeted, oof. That equaliser makes for an even tastier game next week between Real Madrid and Girona. Yeah, I'm not an avid tweeter, but I just thought I was watching the Atleti game and it does make for a, for a big game. It's the, the top of the table clash, although 
Girona are kind of faltering a little bit. I know that we did a podcast including them recently, um, but it looks like Real Madrid are going to run away with it, which is a bit of a shame because Girona have been one of the, the most exciting stories across Europe this season. So how to play against a top team? Uh, simple question, but within that, a fair few different categories for us to talk through. Yeah, we were sort of thinking in advance of how to how to categorise this because there's markedly sort of different approaches. And this is, I think, the interesting point of it, really. It's become, I think, slightly debated in terms of how teams approach it, sort of in terms of style. And some managers are now becoming increasingly dogmatic and saying, OK, if we're a team that primarily likes to attack or be possession heavy, we're going to stick with that against the best teams and say we'll try and sort of go toe for toe against them. They're sort of tactically flexible teams. Brighton do a lot to Zerbi say, I'm going to stick with this and we're going to go press Man City, we'll try and play out. Tactically flexible teams who who tend to switch and go a bit more defensive. I think Wolves are a decent example. Brentford are probably the primary one under Thomas Frank where they often play 4-3-3 and then switch to a 5-3-2. And then the third example really that I could think of is teams who are primarily a bit more defensive anyway, a la West Ham, maybe Palace to a slight degree, that they're primary way of setting up or playing and tend to suit those games a bit more anyway they don't need to change as much and they're the sort of three I would broadly categorize into yeah I mean they were my three categories so I'm not kind of disagreeing with Lynn <laughs> but I, I, after saying that I wonder whether there was a fourth one because I think there's quite a big difference between say like the way Dyche plays with Everton they do react a bit but they don't really need to but then Brentford, even though they're quite defensive minded in general, they are very flexible in terms of you don't really know what system they're going to play against one of the big clubs. So maybe there's a subcategory there. But yeah, it feels to me like it's more of an issue than ever for a couple of reasons. One, the inequality in the Premier League just means there is so much difference between playing against a top side and playing against a bottom half side. And second, because almost all the sides towards the bottom of the league now are trying to play good football. Mm. I mean, even 10 years ago where you had a lot of sides like Bolton or Blackburn who they almost reveled in their status as underdogs. And now you've got a side like, I think companies, Burnley, probably the best example, who week in, week out want to play, broadly speaking, a Man City style of football. Can you do that against one of the big sides and still hope to win? Personally, I think it's very difficult, but also it's very difficult to then play a completely different style of football. That's it, isn't it? We've talked a lot about the fact that if you are in the bottom half of the table, for example, the most likely contributor to you staying up rather than going down will be your results against those around you. These games against what I guess what would have previously been called the big six. Now in the Premier League, the landscape doesn't make that quite so simple, but broadly the, the top teams in the division, they are still very important to picking up points, but also within a tactical framework, the question of sticking to your guns or being adaptable, being pragmatic, and to what extent that provides a, a strength in terms of those individual games or potentially a weakness in terms of how coherent you can be on a match-to-match -match basis, I think is, is really interesting. So this is particularly relevant for fans of clubs outside the, the Premier League elite, whose objective at first and foremost is to survive and then use that hopefully as a platform to thrive as well. Let's chop up some of the examples of, of teams. We will be focused on the Premier League, but of course this topic has relevance to basically any football division. Why don't we start with a team like West Ham? Where do they fit into our categories here? Well, I think West Ham are really interesting. There's probably a bit of a Mandela effect around them being really good against some of the top teams. Going back to the, the final season at the Berlin, where they were really good, admittedly, that was 2015-16. That was the season Leicester won the title and 
the, the big six or the, the top sides didn't do as well, any of them. Obviously, that's why Leicester, as great as it was, won a, a relatively easier Premier League. So they've been really good this season. They've won away, uh, won away at Arsenal, which is Moyes' first win, beaten Arsenal at home as well in the Cup, beaten Manchester United at home, Chelsea at home. They've really sort of doubled down on their sort of defensive but structural play. I think there's a really interesting point and I had a piece that went up before they played Manchester United, ironically lost, but actually had quite a good performance. Mm. Um, despite them being sort of low possession, their opponents had the second, and this is looking at the, the, the big six historically, had the second lowest total possessions against them. So they're not having a, a ton of different sequences. It's really extended periods of play where West Ham are sat in a defensive shape. Mm-hmm. Alvarez has slotted really well into midfield where he can shuffle into wide areas and, and track runners. They've got big lads in the box that can head and kick everything clear. And then when they need to, they can step up to press or they can make regains and they can attack. But they're really content to say, no, one, two minutes at a time, you can have the ball, we'll shuffle, we'll sit into a low block. And I thought that's an interesting way, and we'll come on to this later, but contrasting them to someone like Brentford, who've been a bit more transitional and have often got the ball and straight away gone long. Mm. I've quite enjoyed actually seeing West Ham in big games get the ball after sort of five, ten minutes of defending and just circulating it. They'll quickly hit this really expansive shape. Alvarez drops in between the centre-backs often. Full-backs really push on and they go, we'll just we'll take the sting out of the game. And I thought it's an interesting way of approaching actually the transition element of it, which really tends to be the key point in attack. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Liam's piece on that um, recently on, on West Ham was brilliant. It might not be bigging yourself up, but it was a really interesting read. But it made me think about possession in general of how it can be quite a misleading statistic because you can use that as, a, well, they didn't have much of the ball, therefore they, they weren't very dominant. But possession, not having that much possession doesn't mean you not necessarily have that much control. Mm-hmm. So especially with West Ham and David Moyes, they are still controlling the game even though they don't have the ball and they'll go, they'll happily go minutes at a time without necessarily having the ball and I think that it's hugely effective for for the most part in the way that they like to play. They actually sometimes don't like it when they do have the ball and the onus is on them to actually try and create but you know, then you think about the from the fans' perspective, it's been quite a contentious issue as to whether there should be more entertainment value. But yeah, I think it's it's important to distinguish control and possession because they're not necessarily the same. Yeah, I think Moyes is an interesting one because he's got a reputation, I think rightly so, as being very reactive as a manager. I think one of the funny things about him, and you don't really see this anymore, about 10 years ago, whenever you're watching a game that didn't involve one of his teams... I swear like half the games, the, the cameras would focus on the stands and Moyes would be there watching. <laughs> and you don't, I mean, I'd be interested to know why he doesn't seem to, I mean, do the cameras just not pick him out? Is, is, is scouting software so good that he doesn't feel the need? But he was at more games than anyone. And it was usually obviously against a team that was about to play his mm-hmm. side. And I always thought while he kind of made it difficult for the big teams, his record was quite bad. I mean, famously, he didn't beat any of Manchester United, Chelsea, Arsenal, Liverpool away from home until that win at Arsenal recently. And so, yeah, his, his approach wasn't always particularly effective. And I think in a wider sense, I always feel like Moyes is, is in a slightly difficult situation where he's quite, I mean, he is quite defensive in his approach, I think. And I think supporters who watch his team week out, uh, week in, week out, tend to become fr- quite frustrated with it. But he's not even so defensive that it becomes kind of like a brand. If, if you know what I mean, like it's not like they're Stoke or Allardyce's Bolton, or even Brentford or Luton, where I think they they really revel in the kind of like, yeah, you know, we're going to play a completely different style of football. We're going to make it really tough for you. West Ham, I think, in some ways, try to play like a big club and they mm. bring in players that I think could play for big clubs. I was going to say, their recruitment strategy yeah. certainly has not lent into so, that. 
I think he's in a funny... I don't think there's too many managers like Moyes, actually, in terms of being somewhere in between the two categories. And one thing that does or doesn't help, and you can look at this either way, is how effective they've been in Europe with a very similar style, that broadly what they play a lot of the time looks like sort of knockout football, and we've, we've done whole whole podcasts on this, but it, it showed, particularly against Bournemouth recently, where they went one or down very early on uh, at home, Calvin Phillips got pressed into making an error and, and gave Dominic Solanke a tap in. And then West Ham basically had to come out and, and control the game. And it looked quite awkward for them. That looked Part of the reason that they've been so effective this season against better teams is they've primarily, I think, barring maybe City when they scored first and lost down to some defensive errors and the fact City are so good and, and will punish teams, um, is they've, they've scored first a lot or they've stayed in games for a long period of time. And it's the same for any team that wants to play anyway against a better team is your game plan's got to be fairly perfect. Mm. So you look at West Ham's goalkeepers this season, prior to playing Manchester United against the the big six, prevented almost four goals more than expected, which was the best goalkeeping performance against those teams. And they had the best tackle success rate um, of any team against those opponents in about the last five years. So they were doing their style really, really well when you go... It's not just a case of we have a game plan that makes us good between both boxes to minimise the chances they're getting. There's games where I think that Arsenal set a record for sort of touches in the in the opposition box in the game at the Emirates. And you have to be really good between the boxes to sort of minimise it. And then you still need to be exceptional there. And it's like you can't realistically sustain this for long periods of time. Hence why we see teams have sort of a season or a couple of seasons doing really well against those teams. I think Palace had one a couple of seasons ago. Brentford had a season and, and have now sort of dropped off a lot compared to it. So whether you need to constantly change because top teams tend to evolve and play differently or they sort of figure out what you're going to do and find solutions, mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure. But uh, yeah, teams tend to seem to have a period. Do you think these sorts of matches, Michael, are easier or more natural for teams that already play with a broadly direct style in possession and out of it, those that more naturally defend deeper and more sort of structured block. Yeah, definitely. And I think a good example here are Luton. Um, They are struggling a bit, you can say, in the Premier League this season. I think that's expected considering where they've come from. Uh, At the moment, they're one point uh, above the relegation zone. That's partly, of course, because Everton were deducted 10 points. But when you look at their performances at home against Liverpool, Manchester City, Arsenal and Chelsea, they haven't always got results, but they've really given those teams a tough game. And it's, yeah, it's because they don't really have a decision to make in terms of how they're going to play. They've got the balance right. I mean, you look at the statistics overall this season, they've got the second least possession, second lowest pass completion rate, second highest in terms of aerials. But they don't actually play bad football. I don't think you watch them and think, God, this is tough to watch. They're just hammering long balls. They've got some really good technical players. And I think that one of the things that works for them is the system. And you can say any formation, you can say it looks different in different kind of states of the game. But I think when you play that approach that can look like 5-4-1 without the ball or 3-4-3 three, three in possession, it, it is quite flexible. Mm. And of course, they've, they've brought in some good players as well. I mean, Barkley has been excellent in midfield, I think, in particular. But yeah, I've been really impressed with Rob Edwards. And it's quite unusual for, I think, for a young coach to play quite defensively. It almost seems to be like the young coaches are always... I mean, this is another issue. I think a lot of young coaches are basically careerists. Mm-hmm. And for example, take Vincent Company. He wants bigger jobs in the future. And so he's got to cast himself as a certain type of manager. And I'm not convinced that this is the best way for Burnley to play 
and stay up. I know they went down two years ago with the, the kind of dice style of football, but sometimes I just think they're being naive. And, and okay, you can say, trust the process, it's a long-term plan for developing young players. It, it, it's not a terrible approach. But yeah, I think sometimes it's just about the fact that company, he can't play like dice if he wants to get a big job in the future. And I think that can be an issue. I think endgame is a really important part of the discussion here that teams and coaches, as, as Michael said, want to evolve to playing a certain style and having something to work towards. Often this is what we're talking about is playing in a reactive way, often being defence first. That can't really scale up anywhere because you're just constantly saying, well, how do the other team play? Who are the players that we need to stop? You're not working towards saying, well, there's these these patterns we want to implement or these ways of attacking, these metrics we can look at of, of, of field tilt, of you know our final third output that we can really start to control. And it's it's really a case of you're just trying to be really stubborn and really frustrating. Mike and I were at the, the Brentford City game on Monday and it was quite funny in Guardo's press conference afterwards that Phil Foden scored a hat-trick and the first question he got asked was, you know, how good was, was Phil today? Can you talk about that? And he was like, Brentford are so hard to play against. He's like, yeah. he's looked so drained by the fact, you know, just having this team that are going, okay, back five, midfield three, just completely congesting those central spaces. And then he was already going about having to play them again in sort of two weeks' time in in the reverse fixture. So yeah, it's it's become more of a, a footballing cultural argument, I suppose, is the best way to look at it, where this was historically a way, or these principles of how England teams played in, in the late 90s with you know what at the time was a research-driven way of playing. People seem to forget that research has now been built upon, which is how research works. People find things out and then you test them more. Um, I think there's become this over-desperation now to move away from that and play more like, the Spain teams of the early two mm-hmm. thousands, the the French, the Germans, and people now say, okay, have we maybe gone too far? And there's still a place for these teams to to play in that more defensive way. Yeah, I mean the the guy spoke about Brentford and and Luton. I think whatever the sort of the style may be, it not necessarily having to be quick and direct or whatever it is, as long as maybe against the top teams, it's more jarring to play against. Whereby it's something a little bit different and. You know, Michael mentioned Burnley. I'd maybe say Norwich of seasons gone by, maybe a, a Watford to a certain extent where they don't really have that clear a style or they try and implement a style that's the same as the top teams, but just a simply poorer version to which you're then going to get you know, beaten by those those better teams. So those more creative teams, if you like, a Sheffield United under Chris Wilder in the first instance with a, an overlapping or two overlapping centre-backs, the Marcelo Bielsa leads where it was a really man-marking, aggressive out-of-possession style and in-possession style, very direct. Brentford, as Liam mentioned, with their, their hybrid shape, ability to, to adapt, but their ability to use set pieces so, so well as well. And, and Luton, as, as Michael said, so I think as long as it's something that is a little bit jarring that seems to be there's a pattern there of having the most success this episode is supported by season three of fx's welcome to wrexham celebrity owners rob McElhenney and ryan reynolds small town welsh football club has finally been promoted into league two after 15 seasons in the national league Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, 
Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Brentford seem like the most relevant team to this whole discussion, not only because Pep Guardiola is visibly drained, having <laughs> just tried to solve the problems that Brentford provoke, they also have an incredible record for a team of their stature and league position against the the top teams in the division. And probably most interestingly for the discussion, they don't just do what they always do. They do mix and match. They do tweak. They react to their opposition, which considering it's so successful, I'm now wondering why more teams don't do this, Liam. Can you explain exactly what they do and why it might be difficult to achieve for another team? Yeah, I can. I mean, Thomas Franklard explained what they did on a Monday Night Football a while back, so I can just sort of take, take directly from him. And I put some of that in, in the piece on, on Monday night, which, again, is an interesting wrinkle now to the discussion that against both City and Spurs, they went ahead in the game and then had errors they had spells in the game where they sort of faded and drifted and ended up losing both of them. So largely it's, what. Well, it was quite good because he said to Jamie Carragher there, like it's always a, a five-three-two, and um, they tend to drop the wing backs very deep into a flat back five. The the eight, I think he called it, so the outside central midfielder will will tend to come across, and they basically want to make three v threes out wide or four v threes, so mm-hmm. having a player advantage to you know deny teams that chance to progress. I wonder if that's still as much the case now, where and it was a good example against City where. Phil Foden was nominally on the left, but rolled inside and into midfield. And it was basically only Oscar Vardio that was pushing forward. Um, so you're looking now at teams really packing the central areas even more. Um, and I think the result from that was, in the second half at least, I could see Neil Morpé was dropping really deep into the defensive third a lot of the time. So that's a striker dropping in um, onto Rodri. And it, it largely did work. The problem was they then, they had errors. And I think the third goal in particular was the exact sort of goal where the ball goes through the middle. I think it's Rodri who plays it into Haaland who no one gets close to him and he can set it um, into Foden's path and dribble through. And you go, that's the exact goal you're set up to defend against, to control those central areas. So look, it, it worked really well last season. I think it was, was them and Brighton who took the most points against the big six, which is interesting because they're really contrasting styles. But I don't just want to profile Brentford as a low block team here because they do a lot of man-for-man pressing as well. And they tend to push into that from from those high positions. Um, but then against teams now that tend to put players into midfield from sort of fullback, especially against Spurs, that they tended to suffer a bit there. And I also wonder if their tendency to go maybe a bit too direct at times when they do win it back and not always keep it, a la West Ham, means sometimes they don't actually have a spell of possession. They can get a counter-attack, but if they lose it, then it's suddenly another wave to defend, another wave to defend. I mean, it's a question as much as anything, but I want to hear for, from you guys on the, is it sort of made easier to be a little bit more flexible because each team typically has a, a principle of play, which is a bit more standardised, shall we say, and then the tweaks come from more of the, the tactical side of it, maybe if it, if it is just moving from a, a back four to a back five, whereby it's only the change really in the, the spaces and the distances between certain players, but the the approach is largely consistent I suppose if it was asking a team to be completely different in their style more so than personnel and specific tactics that would maybe show them to to struggle a little bit more and the message itself would be potentially inconsistent you might not get the buy-in from the players but is the sort of the thread throughout the fact that these teams are maybe adapting sometimes but 
the principles of play are largely the same in and out of possession. I'd say so. I mean, City this season are on track to become possibly the first Premier League team to, to win the league with over 90% pass completion. And I looked back as far as I could on, I think, who scored. And in 2009-2010, Chelsea and Arsenal, who were first and third, were the only teams with more than 80%. So in not a ridiculously long period of time, just over a decade in, in football, you can see just, just how pass-heavy that's become. And I think there's now a lot of synergy in terms of the spaces that top teams tend to occupy. And we've talked about this before, Of even if you compare moving sort of a, a fullback or a halfback, as Michael likes to call it, inside, that they'll do that in different ways because they've got, you know, if it's Arsenal wanting to attack through their wingers primarily, compared to, say, Spurs and sort of overloading the half spaces and trying to make cutbacks, that it's sort of, as you say, same principles of we tend to want to attack through those five vertical lanes, we want to control possession in sort of this structure and have the rest of fence organised, but it's down to their personnel, right? And the, the coaches will always say that of exactly your shape might be tweaked. I think Wolves were a great example when Gary Neal again went on Monday Night Football and was saying that they went man for man against City on the left side, where I think it was Totti stepping out to Foden and they were sort of stacked up more on the right-hand side because that's where Haaland, they'd worked out, wanted to make all those runs and it was to deny him that way. So yeah, the principles, I think, as you say, stay the same. And then you get those tiny tweaks, which I think from a naked eye, if you just looked at a shape or a structure, you'd go, well, it's the same thing every time. And you go, it is until that pass goes there. And then suddenly the movements are slightly different compared to the previous game. Who are the current teams that would occupy what we might call the toe-to-toe category? Those that refuse to adapt or comply? Um, Who would stand out this season, Michael? Well, in terms of game plan and mentality, probably Brighton. It depends how we mean adapt. I mean, they are very flexible in terms of changing system every week. Liam will be able to speak about it more than me, but I don't think they necessarily adapt more against the big sides than they would against the smaller sides. I think they they just are very flexible. I mean, there aren't... I mean, Burnley, are, as we mentioned, are a, a poor side trying to play good football, but I'm not sure there's anyone really punching above their weight with possession football. Maybe you could say Bournemouth would be a good example, but when I think back... A while, you know, someone like Brendan Rodgers of Swansea, I think they were quite interesting where they came up and they did try to keep the ball probably more than anyone in the league apart from Arsenal at that point and finished, I think, ninth or tenth in their first season. I don't quite see anyone in that mould. But yeah, maybe maybe Bournemouth would be the, the best example. But I think of them being really about pressing first and foremost more than possession play. I think Villa deserve a massive shout here that they, they tend to play in quite a structured way. And I think that's probably one of the the key points, the same as Brighton. So a lot of their build-up can be very sort of pattern-based, very repeatable that it often looks, you know, in the same way, going into the same players, the first sort of, or different variations of the same, you know, two or three passes in a row. And that, that I think in terms of implementing, implementing it very quickly, both, both the Zerbi and Emery very quickly had success. Not quite in a shock factor sense, but in a sense of before teams can catch on, if you can, you know, access a number nine very quickly and then suddenly set it into a midfielder and you've bypassed six or seven outfielders. And again, a big part of this now we need to point out is that because a lot of teams play short, a lot of teams now tend to press really high. So if you can get really good at playing out and building out really well, well then suddenly you're going to get into situations where you've kind of got six players from each team all in that team's defensive third. And then it's like a 3v3 or 4v4 on the halfway line. And if you can access that, well, that's in a great position. You've got all the space to play into. I think that Spurs got the Etihad as a, as a prime example. So yeah, I'd give Villa massive credit for that, particularly I think the games against Arsenal, but City especially where they use those sort of wingers that aren't wingers. It's kind of the the old Moyes, the, the, is it the false winger used to be called, where they'd sort of roll inside and play more like sort of number 10s. And there's parts of that that then become... I think 
predictable and when it works, it can work really well. And when it fails, it fails even worse. You're not going to get West Ham going to a big six team or a top six team or at home and completely blowing them away. But you're also probably not going to get them crashing and burning. Whereas, you know, with Villa, you had them go to Newcastle and their high line got completely picked apart, but then they can beat, you know, top teams repeatedly at home. Brighton went to Arsenal and got completely pressed to, to absolute death in the in the first half. And Ahmed Walid wrote a really good piece on that that's, that's on site and just could not get out of their half. Um, so it's it's going to sort of raise the the ceiling of your successes and I think lower the floor of your failures. And as we were saying before, in terms of um, sort of how a lot of upcoming managers now want to play or, or head coaches, I think they're prepared to take those as long as it's in a net positive. And I broadly agree with that, but I also get that there's those games where it happens and it goes completely wrong and people go, what on earth are you doing? You need to rip up the start and change it completely. I mean, yeah, just on the, the note of refusing to adapt or not, you know how much I like to look at my research studies for different topics. And I found a 2023 study and it was um, conducted by a group of researchers at Sheffield Hallam University. And they basically looked at the adaptability in playing style as a determinant of team performance and success as a mm -hmm. consequence. And the findings aren't overly um, surprising, but they looked at nearly 22,000 matches played across the top five European leagues from 2014-15 to 2019-20. And they basically found that the ability of teams to flexibly vary their playing style throughout the season was positively associated with team performance. So if you're able to to generate and adapt to different playing styles throughout the season you're more likely to have more offensive and defensive success so winning more games so you know this is largely what we've we've seen in the premier league and to to liam's point about the the subtle tweaks actually it could be associated with mm -hmm. the change in playing style if you thought about it like that it does show that maybe a staunchly dogmatic approach maybe isn't the best way to go This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I always had this idea about Eddie Howe's Bournemouth that I wanted to bring up, which was that they would play, to my eyes, a very attack-minded style of play uh, as their go-to in all games. And against the top teams, it felt like they regularly got beaten 4-0, 5-1, because they refused to adapt. They, they tried to go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, but the realities of, of football and budgets and talent advantage chopped them down somewhat. And I always wondered whether their idea behind doing that was to give them strength in games when they played those around them in the league table so that they were more comfortable taking the game to an opposition against whom they were more on a, a level playing field. I mean... Is there any way of proving or disproving that or saying that is a good or uh, ultimately a naive approach? Probably not proving it, but again, to look at Burnley, who I think are the best example, you look at their games against the other 
promoted sides. Home to Sheffield United, they won 5-0. Away at Luton, they won 2-1. And of course, in that home game against Luton, I think they were very unlucky not to win because of that controversial late goal that Luton scored. So yeah, I mean, they are good when they're playing against, with respect, kind of championship level opposition. As you talk, I wonder whether the, you know, I keep talking about when you play the teams around you against whom you're battling for survival. Has that group of teams got a little smaller? Because we're We've got Aston Villa in fourth. We've got Newcastle having had a, a fantastic two years or so. Brighton, we discuss, project themselves as a, a top team, certainly in the way that they play and when they're at their best. I wonder whether, actually, the the fixtures I'm saying are most important. I wonder if there's fewer of them now than ever before. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that in terms of historically, maybe when you're talking about Eddie Howe at Bournemouth, the quote-unquote big six was a little bit more of a thing. Where if you were to then extrapolate that, you'd think that the games that the the teams are playing against the big six accounts for about one third. So the majority are teams who are there or thereabouts, you know, around you or maybe, you know, a little bit better. So you kind of want to play the percentages there and think, okay, we'll back ourselves maybe against more more teams around us. But as you say, that's not the case anymore. So I don't know. I, I do like the the Eddie Howe principle of kind of getting that consistency, that buy-in, but for the reasons that you outlined of it's yeah a small pool really probably four or five now teams mm. who are battling relegation maybe where previously it was maybe closer to eight I don't think we can put it in that category anymore so you do need to accrue points against the toughest possible opposition probably more important at the moment than in previous eras in terms of pushing you for some conclusions here because we've we've tried to give an overview of the different approaches uh, I know that you guys aren't going to want to put your heads too far above the parapet and say you have to play this formation and this style in order to win points against the top teams but broadly in terms of, of principles or how you would communicate might be the best way to be thinking about this Liam where would you start what's the best approach well I think you have to factor in if you're putting yourself in the shoes of an inferior team against superior opposition that if you're going to have to play or defend particularly you know, in accordance with how they're going to attack, then the fact that they tend to put so many bodies now and particularly look at fullbacks coming inside and, and nines dropping in that can be sort of primarily less goal scorers than ever before, it can make a lot of sense to fill up with players at the back because you go, normally the solution of how you break down a, a 5-3-2 or any sort of back five like that tends to be trying to cross from wide areas and, and hitting the striker. I think of the the goal Kane scored away, away to Brentford, I think last season, where it's a deep in swinging cross and, you know, the one thing you can't physically stop is the player putting the cross in and then you have to defend the aerial duel. Mm. It's the same reason why it works when teams want to play long from the goalkeeper because you can't stop the goalkeeper kicking it long. You just have to set up to defend it. Um, whereas obviously if they want to play through the third, you can try and put a shape around that. So I think there's increasingly a space for that. But again, it's the same now. I think of, I always come back to the point, I think the best teams now are, are adaptable. I think Inter, and this isn't a Premier League team here, but Inter Milan under Simone and Zaghi are a really great example of that that I'd encourage anyone to watch that I imagine they'll go into the latter rounds now of the Champions League and have a really strong defensive base, but then they go into top games in, in Serie A and they beat Juventus in, in the Derby d'Italia just this weekend past and were, spent the whole game pretty much camped in, in uh, Juve's half, having one of their, their left wing back, DiMarco, sort of on the last line, running in behind their right centre-back with effectively an assist, trying to bicycle kick in the opposition box. So sure, they've got the budget relative to, to their league. It's not quite the same thing, but if you can do that part of it as part of your game, then it's going to be really helpful when you play sides that, that play the antithesis of those big teams. Because it's kind of my job to try and put puzzle pieces together, I'm going to put something out there and you can shoot me down. If we did have to 
pick a team this weekend to play against Manchester City. Michael, given that the top teams, as you guys have been writing about for years now, almost always attack with a, a front line of five players now stretching across the pitch and that defending that front five with four defenders can provide problems quite often with overloads at the back post. It feels like we'd probably select a, a back five out of possession, a, a five-man defensive line. Liam's also talked about the need to squeeze central areas as much as possible because what a waste of time it is having defenders if you're just allowing the, the opponents through the front door and through the middle of you, which leads me to think that at least three central midfielders to, to play in front of the back five but to defend that central area are quite important what do we do above that do you like a fixed front two in order to try and provide a, a really genuine threat on the counter-attack if you can get those first few passes right in transition or do you have to lean into we are going to be defending 75 percent of the time so maybe an, another more defensive-minded body in the form of a more of an attacking midfielder or a, or even a, a wide player? How would you sort of look at it? It's tough. I mean, me and Lynn with the Brentford game on, on Monday and I did like the way they played with, with two up front and they had two options, Tony and, and Mopai, very different players and obviously that paid off for the goal. Mm. So I think that was quite a good advert for, for playing two up, up front. I think City, they're so tough to play against now because they've just got this back four of four proper centre-backs at times or Carl Walker who's obviously very quick very good defender so it is difficult I think to know really how you get at City as a smaller side I mean the best I think in the league this this year has probably been Wolves when they won 2-1 against City and they were very cautious um, but they also pressed well in midfield they gave Kovacic and Nunes a really tough time so they didn't go full defensive full negative kind of football but they knew that they had to kind of force turnovers and then build transitions from there so it's tough to say in terms of shape but um, there's obviously different ways to go about it I mean yeah Wolves was going to be my my example as well and I was in preparation for this podcast was looking at the the Gary O'Neill clip on on Monday Night Football and he was saying and he showed just how well Mateus Cunha did on uh, on Kovacic to make sure that anytime he received the ball it was him who was just helping out the midfield and making sure that they could break and break in numbers because they there were times when they had a, a 3v3 and then exposed that with the pace of Pedro Neto etc but Gary O'Neill would be a really good example of that well Michael spoke about it before but that pragmatism to be that like, I can we can adapt still have the same principles of play and he spoke about it really well and on, on Monday Night Football and said a, a big key to me is being adaptable and flexible. I'd love to go to Manchester City and press. I'd love to have 70% of the ball, but is that going to happen? And are we going to win the game? Probably not. So he said, which I thought was really interesting, how far do I need to move away from my ideal to give us the best chance of winning in mm -hmm. this game? So it's a, it's a continuum. How far do I need to move? I probably do a little bit as all teams do, but just how far does that need to, to go? And then in that clip as well, it was really interesting where he said that thinking about the fans, depending on if you're you know, a smaller team and you're at home, to get that buy-in from the fans and not have them grumbling, booing at half-time, whatever it is. He said that they, the team showed enough on the occasions that they did break forward and created a chance or even an opportunity that didn't come into fruition in the end, that when they did counter-attack, it showed to the fans that stick with us because yeah. this is the right idea, even though we're suffering for 10, 15 minutes at a time. So the Wolves game was, was a great example of that. And certainly their win over Chelsea over the weekend followed a absolutely fantastic blueprint. And it just looked everything that went well for Wolves looked like a, f a function of 
of game plan. It, it wasn't random what happened there. They, they followed a fantastic game plan. Yeah, the pressing in midfield on Caicedo in particular looked quite similar. Obviously, we then got to mention that they'd lost in the week 4-3 at home to Manchester United and been a lot less well-structured defensively. So it's obviously really hard to play. I think it's even harder now than ever to play against against those top teams with, with the depth that they've got. The fact probably the game's gone even longer now. There's just an extra five minutes to defend. And, you know, one of the things Guardiola said on Monday was just quality tends to, to show through eventually. I wonder as well if it's particularly difficult now as we see more of those teams which are good but not quite great. So I'm thinking of the, the Brighton, the Aston Villa, the, the West Ham, who playing Europe now as well and having to balance that and trying to then... If you play one of these teams hypothetically on a Sunday or at any point in the season, you've just got an extra, what is it so far from the group stages, six games and the travel and the workload within that to, to add in. And I don't have the number specifically to hand, but from memory, you tend to have higher physical outputs when you're defending and not always intensity stuff because, you know, unless you're pressing high, that can be more sort of in transition. But you then just get into the realms of suffering from success a little bit, don't you? So I think Wolves are an interesting case study this season to see how when they play those teams again in reverse fixtures, do they do the same thing? How do the other teams adapt relative to them? Because I think that tends to be a good litmus test of, I guess, just how adaptable the coaches and how good the players are. Again, one point I don't know if we've mentioned, but it comes down to the profile of players you've got available as well. You look at Maximilian Kilman. He's, I mean, he's a really good technician, but he's probably about six foot four, six foot five. Totti's very big. Craig Dawson's been a phenomenal box defender at West Ham and at Wolves now. And they've got, I think, in Cunha, Pedro Neto, especially phenomenal players on the break and the, the sheer pace they've got. It makes sense because it's a it's a player's game at the end of the day. You've got to use the, the types of players that you've got. And I guess then it's how do you build them into a more possession team becomes the bigger part of the question for someone like Gary O'Neill. Yeah, last season, Wolves didn't score a goal against City, Arsenal or Manchester United in their six fixtures against them. They picked up four points from 12 games against the top six in the Premier League. Uh, this season, they've already picked up seven points from games against current top six teams and they still have five fixtures to play, albeit four of them are away from home. So just adding an, an attacking strategy against these teams that has them a little scared and for good reason really does make a massive difference, I think. Yeah. I mean, there's one tiny caveat to that um, is I think they've got the same points under Gary O'Neill now as Lopetegui had in. They've played identical games under O'Neill as what they played under Lopetegui and the records are like practically identical. So then it becomes a case of who do you want to get your points from? Mm. It probably is, from a fan's perspective, more fun to beat a big six team at home or go away and win. But then the actual impact of if you beat a team around you as well can be actually more powerful because, you know, it's then they don't gain on you and you gain away from them. Definitely, probably another whole episode about something that came to mind when Michael was talking about West Ham and this almost identity issue of what are you going to be and what matters to fans really deep down? What matters to fans? Is it entertainment or is it points? And how much can you marry the two uh, if you are a team in, in their situation? We haven't spoken about Palace today at all, but that feels very pertinent to their current situation as well. Um, lastly, is there anything on this front when we talk about elite teams playing against each other and how much Manchester City or Liverpool or Arsenal have to adapt from their pretty consistent ideals when they come up against teams that are their equal? You can't both have the ball is often something that we say when we're previewing games between teams that like to dominate possession. So what happens in these instances? I think back to the Etihad game when City beat Arsenal and, and City went long an awful lot and had, had De Bruyne sort of playing off of Haaland. And similarly, in the fixture at the Emirates earlier on this season when Arsenal beat City 1-0 and there was 
there was the late goal and Tomiyasu, you know, running upfield and, and making a knockdown that it's not, I think, quintessentially the type of goal you'd expect to see or you would estimate to come out of a, a fixture like that. And Michael, some relevance to the big fixture from last weekend in the Premier League as well with Mikel Arteta's Arsenal and Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool going head-to-head. And you wrote about Arteta going with what you're calling double tens. I'm calling it a strikerless formation. I'd agree. I mean, it wasn't what I called it. It was what Klopp called it. So Arsenal played that way in the FA Cup game and Klopp said, cool, that was really difficult uh, difficult to play against. So Arteta just played the same way again. And what... Is that and why did Klopp find why does Klopp find it so difficult to play against? Well, they had two players in the I'd say in the channels between the lines, Odegaard to the right, Havertz to the left, and they were just always trying to attempt Van Dijk and Kanata out of position. And I think it gave Liverpool's midfield and centre backs a lot of issues. Essentially, it was four against three in midfield. Van Dijk, I think, had. One of his worst games I've ever seen, really, in terms of being dragged around all over the place. So, yeah, they did find it tough to play against. I agree. I wouldn't really call either of those players number 10s, really. They're too wide to be number 10s for me. But, uh, yeah, there you go. Something you said the other day about Firmino springs to mind here, which is that centre-backs always said they hated playing against him because they didn't really know where he was. They didn't know whether to get tight to him or whether that's exactly what he wanted to create space in behind them. And broadly similar theme there, except it's Arsenal now doing it against Klopp's Liverpool. I suppose it's still you still have to have some sort of threat in behind, don't you? So the, the wide forwards coming inside and making those clever runs too. Yeah, exactly. And Havertz for the first goal as well. I actually didn't think Havertz did that enough. I think there were a few occasions where he could have gone in behind. Don't think that really comes naturally to him. But yeah, it was a, a very effective system. The rich tapestry of Premier League tactics uh, gives us content every single week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. This week was no different. Thank you to Liam for the idea this week. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion. If you have any follow-ups, you can get in touch with us individually on Twitter, but there's also a section of the Athletic app where this podcast lives. You can listen to the podcast through the app without ads, and you can comment as well on the specific episode page if you have any further queries or questions or anything that you'd like to emit to us Uh, thank you for listening and do so again next week please on the athletic football tactics podcast and sign up to the athletic today at theathletic.com forward slash tactics go well the athletic